You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom and Tech, a regular conversation about the collision of media, technology, and entertainment, and we like to pick through and find the gems of interesting tidbits and wisdom and stories that uh, emerge therein. Uh, I'm your host, David Bloom. I am, as always, so glad to have you join me, and thank you all, particularly my supporter, Peter B., who uh, is actually sponsoring, helping sponsor this stuff through a program that is done through Anchor.fm, where I host and syndicate and put together my podcasts. So thank you, Peter, for your support. More generally, I'm excited. This week I was at the Open Influence Summit on Wednesday. The summit was a gathering of ad agencies, brands, a bunch of other folks sponsored by a company called Open Influence that does influencer marketing. I was there to moderate a panel that also featured the CEO of Open Influence, Eric Dehan, as well as Tanya Bershowski. She's a dear friend I've known for many years. She runs Casting Influence, which connects brands with influencers of many kinds for all kinds of projects uh, in front of the camera and behind. The third person on the panel was Larry Shapiro, who is a former full-screen executive and now heads Ensemble Digital Studios, which represents influencers such as Laura Cleary. While I was there, the keynote opening conversation was between Dehan and longtime writer, consultant, thinker, speaker, Brian Solis. Brian has been what he calls a digital anthropologist for most of the last quarter century, studying the fast-growing, fast-evolving world of digital and social media as it reshaped business, entertainment, culture, politics, and especially all of us. Then last year, Solis stopped. He noticed he was having a hard time focusing. He couldn't read a book for more than 15 minutes. He spent too much time on endless phone calls or consuming meaningless content that added little to work or home life and constant revelations about fake news, election manipulations, extremist behavior, data mishandling, and more made the object of his long-time attention this past 20-plus years look not just bad, but perhaps dangerous to us all. So he embarked on a very interesting inner journey, best described in his new book, Life Scale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life. His book, released in March, is substantially different than the numerous business tomes he's previously written, all detailing how companies must adapt to the digital era, connect with influencers, and reshape their brands for the new realities. But now he's suggesting that uh, we need to adapt away from the digital world that we've embraced so quickly, so powerfully, and so problematically, adopting, in some cases, tools that are much older than the digital era and others that are are quite new. I think it's a really interesting uh, book. I strongly recommend it. It brings together things such as uh, mindfulness and meditation, along with some of the work done by people, activists such as Tristan Harris, tries to figure out how we can build a more healthy, focused, and respectful relationship with our digital world. I ended up catching Brian for a short conversation, which we'll follow here in, talking about Influence 1.0, Influence 2.0, and trying to help make our way in this digital universe that we're in the business of creating. So give a listen after a word from our sponsor.
we're back. Thanks so much to our supporters and sponsors for all their help getting this stuff to you. I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Brian Solis, author of Life Scale and so much else, really, about uh, many things. Uh, but this book in particular, I think, is fascinating and perfect for our time. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and uh, here we go. Here with Brian Solis. Who's with Altimeter yep. Group? You were just on stage with the Open Influence Summit talking about 20 years you spent as a digital anthropologist and excavating Influence 1.0. First of all, what was that? <laughs> Influence 1.0. Well, let me kind of take a step back. The reason that I started studying digital anthropology was because it was very clear that the future of any type of information, influence, what, what have you, was all shifting online. And Influence 1.0 was really about understanding the dynamics of peer-to-peer engagement. What happens when the average person now becomes the influencer and the average audience now looks to their peers to make decisions or to be informed or to share whatever it is. And it, it becomes diffused across the entire populace instead of it being a top-down right. uh, hierarchy of a priesthood almost of of thought leaders. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you think about in the 90s, that's exactly what the the media model was. It was in the hands of certain media outlets and it propagated to those audiences. And then when we started as human beings, average people getting connected to first internet 1.0 and then eventually social media, we became media as well. Uh, And so that democratized the all of influence. And so that was what I started studying as Influence 1.0, was just sort of the democratization of influence. When it's referred to in influencer marketing, which is a subset of influence, it ironically became a mirror of the traditional hierarchy model that had existed before. It was find the most popular people, give them something to do or say or show, and then let that spread in terms of visibility. And really, they were actually using the numbers, or the the, the metrics that they were using were right out of uh, broadcast TV in 1956. How many eyeballs saw this, right? And impressions and the share rate and what have you. And, it's completely and it's still like that. Media, right. yeah. <laughs> it's still like that. Uh, and so the difference is that I started also studying how people make decisions and how they're influenced uh, and how they take action. And I called that Influence 2.0. And, and my work around that was, and again, marketing is a subset of that, but you can apply this to politics, to anything really was understanding how you could reverse engineer that behavior in order to reintroduce value at every step of that journey. So it was the idea was completely embracing modern influence in new ways and giving it new metrics to actually have a positive effect on society. So we are now in what you would call Influencer 2.0. I'm hoping to push it that way. Uh, <laughs> and we're still having these conversations. But, but emotion <laughs> is, is really key here. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be seeing some data in the next couple of days out of Deloitte Digital on emotion and how it's driving decision-making and all that. But you would say how we tap that, how we engage with that is really the fundamental question, I suppose, in real influence. Yeah, absolutely. So... Influence 2.0 exists today, and we see it every single day, and it's, in, and it's not in a good way. It's when you look at the manipulation of media, the spreading of misinformation and fake news, when you look at the role that bots play in sort of the spreading of this misinformation, and then the human psyche, the reaction to that, why we believe it, and why we're so reticent to go find the truth. And that's Influence 2.0 right now. It's manipulating... It's more like negative 2.0. Yeah, it's, it, and so the 
same effect so that work in that regard can be delivered in very positive, beneficial means. And that's the part that I'm trying to get people to understand is that you can have you, you have a role in how this plays out. Now, you're trying to get them to do that. So how are you doing that? And are you seeing some efforts by others to also try to make that happen at this point? Yeah, there's like in anything, there's there's adoption. And we're on the left side of the bell curve for the positive side of this. We saw we definitely saw it work on the negative side. And it's an incredible look as bad as it is. It's an incredible case study in understanding how to do this stuff the right way. And I don't know why there's not enough conversation, honestly, about it. And any smart politician would embrace Influence 2.0 in a positive way to use the same means. I, I'll give you an example. I set up in, in, before the 2016 election, I started to see a lot of activity with bots and they're nothing new. They've always been around, but I started to play with creating bots against bots. So like, so could you tackle the spreading of misinformation with right information and then follow it along to all of the human beings who were spreading the, the wrong information so with, with the facts. Like, like re-information. Yeah, re-information. And it's fantastic at how it worked. And you know, nobody even realized that they were bots because they'd argue with the bot and, and you, you could program it to argue back. But the whole point is, is that it's there right now. And no, not enough people are figuring this out. It's all being used in the worst possible ways. And I think any brand or any politician or any media outlet could actually make these investments and start to re-engineer society in a positive direction with the best of intention. Well, now, th this is an interesting notion because, yes, they can. We have seen it used problematically in a lot of elections. We've also seen what I'd call the empire strikes back. We've seen GDPR in Europe and the copyright restrictions. We're seeing growing interest in regulating in a variety of ways or breaking up all the big tech companies uh, using antitrust in new ways or maybe really old ways in a new in a new style. There clearly are some pushback. There's clearly there's people like Tristan Harris talking about the negative physical and, and emotional impacts of too much use. You said 30% of their time for teenagers is going to, or maybe it was Eric, 30% of their time is going to use. So what does that pushback look? Is that going to be effective in sort of gating some of the negative stuff and then in turn opening up the opportunities for the positive stuff? Or how's it going to play out, you think? Well. Let me, let me address the earlier part of your comment, then I'll, I'll come back to how it's going to play out. You mentioned Tristan Harris. His work is actually very, uh, he's essentially a whistleblower. Back in the early 2000s, I said, with, I borrowed a Spider-Man quote, you know, I said, with, with social media comes great responsibility. And it was at the time that I was writing the paper for the Department of Defense, because you could see how this, would, how this could play out. What Tristan Harris talks about and why there are discussions today about breaking up big networks and regulating them, there's speculation that a lot of this is going to at least be regulated, is because that responsibility and accountability wasn't factored into a lot of this stuff as it was being developed. It was grow at all costs. In right. fact, Facebook was famous for saying, ship fast and break things, I think right. is what it was. So they weren't even thinking about the long-term effects. Add to that, and this is why Tristan Harris's work is so important, add to that the design techniques that they were using, which is the same design techniques that go into fake news and misinformation is, it's called uh, persuasive design. It's one of the reasons why games and social media has become so addictive because they're triggering those emotional reactions that make it addictive. They're, they're consciously constructing it to be as addictive to tap those little yeah. uh, uh, serotonin sources. Six and different chemicals in your body that are activated in any, any given scenario. And like any substance, your body becomes dependent on those. And so when you have those moments where those chemicals are triggered, that's why you keep 
you, you feel good for the, you know, you're essentially microdosing every time you pick up your phone. Yeah, on dopamine or serotonin, endorphin, yeah, serotonin. Yeah. As an example, Tristan uh, Harris exposed what's called variable intermittent reward design, where some of the things that you, when you open an app and you don't see your notifications for a millisecond, that creates anxiety. But when you see it, you feel like you won, and that's a moment, it's a moment to celebrate. And so you, you subconsciously, that's one of the design techniques that just kind of keep you coming back for more and feel good about it so it's sort of fooling you and tricking your mind and your body in, into doing this more and more so now you have kids and who this is their livelihood this is this determines their state of happiness this, this their mental health uh, and also their physical wellness these are all things that we're, we're not even studying enough in fact I wrote a whole book that just came out about the long-term effects of this and how it affects things like creativity and deep thought and work and how it affected my personal life when I couldn't even write the book I set out to write and having to figure out the path back to where I was and then also, well, if I'm going to take the same persuasive design strategies and use it in a positive sense, could I make my life better than it was before? Could I make my creativity better? Could I make my work better? And the answer is yes, but the path back was not about technology. It was very much like any, any rehabilitation program uh, and also development program. So it's much more of a human, uh, much more of a human journey. You basically purposely redesigned your own life. Uh, we see lots of conversation about things like using meditation and mindfulness and some of those techniques, which are very old. Yeah. to uh, reconnect back to this pre-electronic state, I guess, in our brains. Are you putting together recommended programs? Is this going to be, in, in, first of all, the name of your book is what? The book is LifeScale, and the name of the book is actually the answer to your question. So I went through all of those things, mindfulness, uh, meditation, apps, productivity apps. Uh, the thing is, is that you've got two conditions. You've got the pre-electronic state, and then you have the digital native where they don't know anything else. And my state was the first part. So what you have is a documented program that works, how you get to where you need to be. Because otherwise, you're just treating the symptoms. That's what I learned, right. is that we don't even realize what's happening inside of us. And so I had to first expose that, you know, built on work like from folks like Tristan Harris, so that you could see what's happening and how that affects you, and then the, the, the journey. The other one is the same journey works for the digital native, but they're it's harder. It's a different journey, though, right? It's, 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 it, they've already been wired. Everybody's journey is in, is, is in, so that's the interesting thing about it. The steps are the same. It's how you go through them are really different. The hard part for the digital native, though, is getting them to believe that what that is you're essentially telling them that the, how you know life is actually hurting you because they don't know anything else, right? And parents aren't helping their kids by giving them iPads and letting them watch YouTube because we're wiring them to be this normal. So in that case, it requires something more like an intervention, and that's, and that's much more complicated. It all works the same, but yeah. getting them to see that they can live a different life, a much more mindful life, a much more aware, present life. I don't ask anyone to stop using technology. It's just about more mindfully using it in a way that adds value to your life and the life of those around you. I think the uh, Oracle of Delphi said moderation in all things. That one, 2,500 years later, still has some value even in this era. Real quick, looking forward, hard to predict the future, but it feels like we're going to see more regulation. It feels like we're seeing some blowback and some shifts in our relationships with this stuff and awareness, even among the 
digital natives. Will we be able, say before the 2020 election, to evolve to a healthier place in some ways? Will you, are you seeing politicians who are using social media in a more positive and constructive as opposed to destructive way and divisive way? On the negative side of, of influence, it's incredibly concerted and intentional. It's organized and very intentional. And state-level actors. Yeah, absolutely. On the other side, it's not organized. In, you, know, you might have great intentions, but you have, you have a real issue. I'm surprised that the United States is not... I mean, this is essentially war. It takes that type of reaction to fix this. And the fact that our leadership, ironically, is in its place because of this, I understand why they're not jumping all over to defend us. But something has to help us because we don't know better. You know, I'll tell you, if I, if, if I, if I was retired, I would actually take this on as a mission and create a, a, essentially a, 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 an engineering tank to just start at least combating all of the negative aspects of this, because that's, that's what it takes. And so I would, I would expect that the Department of Defense would be at least taking measures to at least curb it. The, the answer to your question is really complex, because if you look at the campaign manager for um, for Trump, I can't remember his name right now, he really understands the relationship between data, for example, Facebook data and uh, emotional triggers, very psychological in its nature. Yeah, they were very targeted. Black women of a, a certain range of age in a certain few key states that they needed to turn just a little bit to not show up. Yeah. Just to turn them off enough about the super predator comment that Hillary made 20 years earlier, Right. for instance. Yeah, and all those things work. And so essentially, that's why it's psychological warfare, because you're, you're, you're aiming right at those triggers and manipulating that outcome. So we need that positive side of things. and, and I'm not sure uh, why we're not seeing this, why it's not concerted, why, for example, the Democratic Party isn't sort of organizing around this type of influence initiatives, but that data exists, those triggers are there, and it's, it's waiting for positive engagement. Well, thank you. This is Brian Solis, his new book, Life Scale, and it's already available out in the universe, uh, the universe ready now. to encourage uh, the next generation of influence and influencers. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. That was me, David Bloom, talking with Brian Sullis, the um, consultant, speaker, thinker, writer on issues around influencers, influencer marketing, digital media, what it all means, and now the author of Life Scale and how we can find ways to sort of reconnect with a pre-digital brain function that will allow us to be able to sustain as we go forward and find new relationships. I think it's fascinating stuff and very important. And I do recommend the book. Uh, give it a read when you get a chance. It's out on Wiley. You can find it pretty much everywhere. This is uh, David Bloom. I want to thank again our supporters, our sponsors, and particularly all of you for listening and if you like what you hear please rate review and share it makes all the difference in the world to the magic algorithm machines out there to which i am still moored whether i like it or not in the meantime have a great day and i hope to talk to you again very soon take care everybody You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.